Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 17, Rivals for Power. Now, first things first, let me apologize for the slight delay in releasing this episode. I'm currently traveling at the moment, and the Airbnb, which I had rented for some space to record this episode, just wasn't going to cut it. Combine that with a nasty fever, and the result was inevitable delay. However, I do have some good news. As I'm traveling at the moment and thus not working, for the month of March, Grey History will be targeting a weekly release schedule. So, the amount of Grey History that will hit the airwaves this month will double, and thus, you won't have to wait too long until episode 18 comes out next week. With each episode totaling around 7,000 words, and usually requiring some 200 pages of material to be consumed, they're just a tad time-consuming. So we'll see how this weekly experiment goes. As always, if you're enjoying the show, the best way for you to help the cause is to tell someone who you think would enjoy a podcast that explores the ambiguities of history. Today's episode will focus on the various institutions and individuals which challenge the Assembly's consolidation of power in the new revolutionary order. We'll explore how institutions we are already familiar with start to become more radical and autonomous and we'll meet new political societies which also challenge the power of the Assembly. We'll be introduced to two new individuals who will become very prominent players once the revolution starts turning sour, and we'll touch on the effects of the free press which help make that turn take place. Finally, we'll run through the significant structural reforms the Assembly started to introduce as the deputies remodelled the French nation. So, without further ado, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 17, Rivals for Power. Divided. If I was to use one word to describe the National Assembly from late 1789 to mid-1791, divided would be the word I would use. Division, of course, was not new to the National Assembly. After the fall of the Bastille, the lack of a looming royal coup d'etat had fostered disunity amongst the deputies of France. The divisive debate surrounding bicameralism and the royal veto in September solidified this division and encouraged the splintering of deputies into a range of like-minded factions. However, after the violent revolt of the market women in early October, divisions riddled the assembly to an even greater extent. With the National Assembly now residing in the heart of revolutionary Paris, division, disunity and dissent gripped the lawmakers of France. No one party controlled the body. The Conservatives, led in part by Marie and Malou, 
failed to dominate with their pro-monarch, pro-aristocrat, pro-church agenda. The centrists, led in part by the likes of Mirabeau, Siez, Lafayette and Talleyrand, likewise failed to control the body. Too progressive for an alliance with the right, yet too sceptical of democracy for an alliance with the left. The progressives of the left, be they democratically minded liberal monarchists, republicans in the closet or authoritarian populists, also failed to dictate the agenda. Deputies such as Dupont and Robespierre tried and failed to protect the universal rights of all Frenchmen before the Assembly declared a distinction between active and passive citizens. The result was that no one vision led the Assembly. That lack of a sole, unifying vision of what revolutionary France should look like merely fueled the division of what revolutionary France became. But if division can be used to describe the state of the National Assembly, it can also be used to describe the Assembly's place within revolutionary France. Like Bourbon absolutism, which failed to rule the nation absolutely, the deputies which replaced the king's government also failed to rule the nation in an absolute manner. From the latter half of 1789, the Assembly was being challenged for power by a diverse cast of actors. Notably, these rivals for power were not necessarily counter-revolutionary organisations. Not immediately, anyway. Instead, it was revolutionary bodies, bodies such as the National Guard, the Parisian districts, radical political clubs and the kingdom's municipal governments, which presented a real, credible and destabilising threat to the Assembly's proclaimed monopoly on power. In attempting to address some of these threats, the deputies would introduce a range of reforms, particularly to the administrative and judicial frameworks of France, reforms which naturally created winners and losers. Some of the most aggrieved losers would swell the ranks of the growing counter-revolution. Others, however, would join the ranks of the radical organisations lurking on the progressive left. Groups which believed that far from being over, the revolution was merely just beginning. The National Guard was one such institution which threatened the Assembly's sole grip on power. Created by the electors of Paris during the chaotic days of the revolt of mid-July, the revolutionary militia had been replicated throughout the towns and cities of France during the great fear that followed the fall of the Bastille. Theoretically, the National Guard was subordinate to the local municipal government and was a tool for the new revolutionary order to keep the peace and maintain law and order. Theory and practice, however, can often diverge. Initially, the National Guard was full of everyday Frenchmen. When the electors of Paris created the body, they envisioned that each of the city's 60 districts would supply 800 men, resulting in a force of some 48,000 to protect the city from the royal coup, which had commenced with Necker's dismissal. The result was a militia that was diverse and comprised of men from a variety of backgrounds. As time went on, however, the composition of the guard changed. As a general rule, the only people that had both the time and the money to volunteer in the National Guard were young men from the middle class. That middle class nature of the National Guard was reinforced by the Assembly's later efforts to limit participation in the Guard to only active citizens. The composition of the Guard also changed as the National Assembly started passing increasingly controversial decrees, particularly in regards to the Catholic Church. Those individuals who were less than enthusiastic about the revolution often stopped volunteering, resulting in a reduction of the ideological diversity within the Guard. 
The result of this was that over time the Guard became progressively more radical and supportive of the revolution. Not necessarily supportive of the revolutionary government, but supportive of revolutionary ideas. The National Guard started to become more autonomous as it became more radical, and this created a range of issues for the government. Furthermore, personal rivalries and religious divisions infiltrated the Guard as well. The latter particularly so as the deputies legislated contentious decrees which assaulted the preeminence of the Catholic Church. Combine this with the fact that every time a local municipality armed the National Guard to go do something, and those arms were never returned to the armory, well, what you end up with is a well-armed revolutionary militia which didn't always cooperate with the revolutionary government it was theoretically subordinate to. Throughout 1790 and early 1791, the Assembly received numerous letters from municipal governments complaining that the National Guard failed to obey its orders. As historian John Dolberg Acton puts it, The National Guard was an invention of great import, for it was the army of society distinct from the army of state, opinion in arms apart from authority. And that there was the problem. The National Guard was an opinion in arms. And when that opinion disagreed with the local municipal government or the National Assembly, the Guard could seriously challenge the revolutionary government's grip on power. Historian Timothy Tackett notes that in Britannia, in the northwest of the country, some National Guard units went rogue and attacked nobles and clergymen in the countryside who they suspected of counter-revolutionary activities. Likewise, guardsmen in Kersey, in the south of the country, also unilaterally attacked noble property and chateaus. In the province of Languedoc, guardsmen were split along religious lines, and Catholic and Protestant units were known to fight each other. Historian Bertha Gardner notes that in the countryside, National Guard units were known to make common cause with the rioters they were meant to suppress. The result was that municipal officers were sometimes unable or even unwilling to deploy the National Guard in times of unrest. As the Minister of Justice lamented in November 1789, I do not have the means of disciplining the National Guards, nor of commanding them to follow the law, nor of opposing them with enough force to control them. In Paris, the situation was a little different. After the Guard compelled Lafayette to march on Versailles in October, the commander took measures to install greater discipline amongst the Parisian National Guard. Lafayette hired professional soldiers to fill key positions and more proactively suppressed dissent and encouraged regulations, which were in place to try to prevent the election of more radical officers. This only worked for a time, however. By 1791, the Guard in Paris was known to not only ignore, but actively disobey orders. The most famous example of insubordination came on the 18th of April, 1791, when the king and his family tried to leave the Tuileries Palace for the Parisian suburb of saint Cloud on Easter Monday. A mob gathered to prevent the king's departure, fearing Louis XVI planned to flee the country and escape his prison, which was the city of Paris. Keen to demonstrate that the king was not being held against his will, Lafayette tried in vain to disperse the mob and allow the royal family to attend church. In this task, Lafayette failed miserably. Despite direct orders from Lafayette to disperse the crowd and make way for the king, the National Guard refused to intervene. In fact, repeating the scenes from the October days a year and a half prior, the Guard actually threatened Lafayette. 
pleas from the king were also ignored. One guardsman crying veto in response to the king's appeals for safe passage. Through this action, or more accurately, through this inaction, the guard revealed to the world that the king really was the prisoner of Paris. More importantly, the refusal of the guard to act on Lafayette's orders on the 18th of April 1791 demonstrates clearly its increasing autonomy within the developing revolutionary order. The National Guard was supposed to keep the peace. It was supposed to maintain law and order. But, as historian John Dolberg Acton so excellently puts it, the Guard was an opinion in arms. An opinion in arms which began to separate itself from the supposedly overriding opinion of the National Assembly. By 1791, the National Guard had a mind of its own. A mind which, as we will see, became progressively more radical as the revolution progressed. Within the city of Paris, there was another revolutionary actor which caused headaches for the National Assembly. These were the city districts of Paris. The 60 districts of Paris each had their own electoral assembly. These assemblies had been summoned as part of the elections for the Estates General. These bodies, however, never disbanded, and throughout 1789 and 1790, they took over a range of administrative functions in their localities. The problem, however, for the national government of the assembly and the municipal government of the Paris Commune was that the more radical districts started to vie for power and influence within the new revolutionary order. The assemblies of radical districts embraced the role of a vigilante watchman, guarding the revolution and protecting the people from the conspiracies of counter-revolution. As a result, the districts started to vocally participate in the debates dominating the assembly, particularly when controversial debates heralded the return of aristocratic power. In September, for example, multiple districts voiced official positions against the royal veto, while others demanded that the assembly not make a final decision until after the districts had been consulted. To make matters worse, National Guard units were organised along district lines, so the more radical districts started to try to control their own battalions and override the orders of Lafayette, the Paris Commune, and the National Assembly itself. For example, when the Assembly passed the controversial martial law decree in late October, two citizens, Jean-Marie Martin and Pierre Duval from the Saint-Martin-de-Chartres district, denounced their own National Guard battalion for having signalled cooperation with the law. The men called for those guardsmen to be disarmed and insulted, and Martin declared that the districts had the right to reject police laws in their own territory. The district these men belonged to didn't go so far, but it did pass a decree formally requesting the law be reversed, a clear example of a Parisian district challenging the authority of the National Assembly. On the 29th of October, some three weeks after the October Day's revolt, Lord Fitzgerald wrote to the Duke of Leeds about the increasing autonomy and power of the city's districts, which he likened to miniature states, and remarked about the unreliability of the National Guard. The last week, my lord, was passed very peacefully here, but should we want bread again, which indeed is alarmingly scarce, I must fear that the martial law will not protect us from the violence of some sort or other. One or two of the districts protested against the law and declared their non-compliance with it. 
but not being supported, judged proper to apologise awkwardly to the Assembly and to accede in appearance, although it is, I fear, with foundation, believed that if the National Guard are called to act, they will not do their duty. Although, as I have said above, we have been tolerably quiet of late days, yet, my lord, our position is by no means pleasant. The greatest jealousy still subsists between all orders of men. The sixty districts, which are absolutely so many little sovereignties within the metropolis, exercise the most despotic rule over all. The surging democracy which existed amongst these little sovereignties, the Parisian districts, became more direct over time. On November the 11th and 12th, the Cordelia district proclaimed that its representatives in the city government, the Paris Commune, were bound by the decrees of the district and must obey the wishes of their constituents on each individual issue. Should they fail to obey the wishes of the district, the local assembly declared its right to recall and replace their delegates in the Paris Commune. Other districts followed the lead of the Cordeliers, and thus the districts were acting as a cradle for direct democracy. Direct democracy, of course, being the exact kind of democracy the assembly feared. The purpose of defining active and passive citizens was to prevent such democratic structures. The purpose of creating elections which were divided into multiple stages was to promote representative democracy and hamper the direct involvement of the people. Remember, under the Assembly's new electoral laws, even active citizens didn't vote for deputies in national elections. They voted for electors, and it was the electors which voted for deputies in a separate round of voting. As a result, the radically democratic policies pursued by the Parisian districts presented a serious challenge to the established revolutionary authorities. These positions, combined with an assortment of situations where radical districts directly challenged the power of either the Assembly or the Commune, compelled the government to act in May 1790. The 60 districts were reorganised into 48 sections. To prevent the sections from controlling the National Guard battalions, the Guard remained organised along district divisions. The sections were also gerrymandered to try to prevent new nests of opposition rising within the city. While a solution in theory, the desired effects were minimal. These sections quickly started to meet in assemblies once more, and went straight back to interjecting themselves into the national debate. They continued to decry any policy they disliked. They continued to be able to mobilise an enormous amount of people onto the streets when they wanted to make their voice heard. Furthermore, one of the most radical districts created their own political club to preempt their district's abolishment a political club which became a key player in the French Revolution. Thus, the National Guard weren't the only revolutionary entity to challenge the Assembly's grip on power. The districts of Paris and their successors, the sections of Paris, were also rivals for power. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. 
It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. A district of particular note was the Cordelier district. In anticipating the abolishment of the Parisian districts, members of the district's leadership formed a political club named the Society of the Friends of the Rights of Man in April 1790. More commonly referred to as the Cordeliers Club, this club was unlike the other political clubs we are already familiar with. The Conservative Club Monarchique, the Centrist Society of 1789 and the Progressive Jacobin Club were all dominated by members of the National Assembly at least initially. The Cordeliers Club, however, was an entirely different beast, for this club had no deputies of the National Assembly amongst its initial membership. Furthermore, it was formed in response to the suppression of the Parisian districts, with the club vehemently opposed to the city's reorganisation. As a result, the club had no reason nor desire to defer to the national government of the Assembly or to the municipal government of the Paris Commune. The club quickly established itself on the fringes of the progressive left. Its prominent membership included progressive and radical journalists, including both Camille Desmoulins and Jean-Paul Marat, both writers we are already familiar with, but who did not share much love for one another. The club also included political theorists, including Pierre-Francois Robert and Théophile Mandat. Perhaps the most important man we associate with the club is Georges Danton, referred to as the Mirabeau of the mob and the orator of the streets. The 30-year-old acquired a commanding presence amongst his revolutionary peers. Very tall, quite ugly, and possessing a booming voice. This is how historian Packwood Adams describes the famous Danton. One of the most important was the small district of the Cordeliers, south of the Seine. Here, Danton, the burly friend of Demolard, became a leading spirit. He was a young lawyer, most practical and capable, personally genial and hearty, but soon to become a name of terrible power. Historian Bertha Gardner describes Danton's Cordeliers Club as one of special notoriety and declares, Here presided Danton, an orator distinguished amongst his fellows by the zeal and energy which he flung into the contest with the municipality. Danton and his peers in the Cordelia's Club pursued an unashamedly radical agenda. Danton was clear in his desire for the club to marry the revolutionary intellectual elite with the common people and the club pursued an agenda that sought to do just that. The club sought to defend the interests of the common people from both the bourgeois National Assembly and the aristocratic counter-revolution. It sought to not only politicise the common people of Paris, but also the National Guard, as well as the army and the navy. With a leadership that included both republicans and emancipationists, the club detested any power the king possessed and also sought to improve the conditions of not just the working poor, but people of colour too. Embracing the role of a vigilante revolutionary watchman, the club was always on the lookout for noble conspiracy, and took for its symbol that of a single eye, 
ever watching for threats to France's glorious revolution. Preaching the merits of direct democracy, the club was forever a thorn in the side of both the National Assembly and the Paris Commune. Able to radicalise and then mobilise the working people of Paris, the Cordeliers club was a notable player in the French Game of Thrones. The Cordeliers club, however, wasn't the only club of note on the far left of the political spectrum. Another club existed which was also dominated by Republicans, Emancipationists, and in this case, Feminists. While the Cercle Social does not carry the same weight to its name as the Cordeliers, many of the club's leading members were important players in the French Revolution. Of particular note is Jacques-Pierre Brousseau. Aged 35 at the time of the October days, Brousseau was slightly built, naive, very well-read, and passionate about bettering humanity. Originally a law clerk, Brousseau pursued a literary career instead, and published several publications and pamphlets where he passionately argued for a range of reforms, most notably the abolition of slavery. At times living in poverty, Brousseau understood the plight of the working poor more than most of the revolutionary leaders on the left. A legal theorist and a social reformer, Brousseau became a prominent player in the Paris Commune from mid-1789. From this position in the municipality, Brousseau regularly fought both Mayor Bailly and his centrist tendencies, as well as the likes of Danton and his advocacy for greater empowerment of the Parisian districts. Brousseau, along with Condorcet, was a leading member of the Cercle Social. Founded predominantly by members of the Paris Commune with Republican sympathies, the organisation's original objectives were twofold. Firstly, to better align the Paris Commune with the city districts. After all, as we've just discussed, the districts had been causing a fair bit of trouble, particularly Danton's Cordeliers district. The second objective of the club was to better educate the people of Republican teachings and Enlightenment principles. The difference between the Cordeliers and the Cercle Social was generally, but not always, one more of style and personality than of ideological substance. The Cordeliers and its leader Danton can be described as a bulldog. Rough, loud, ugly, sturdy, dirty, comfortable amongst the working class in the grime of the streets and the boisterous atmosphere of the pub. It was a club which actively sought the working classes amongst its membership. Now, just to be clear, while I'm talking about a French political society, I'm obviously not talking about a French bulldog. As any good vet will tell you, that crime against evolution is the exact opposite of sturdy. Anyway, I digress. Like the Cordeliers, the Cercle Social also sought to marry the revolutionary elite with the people. It also produced a range of publications seeking to educate the masses and further the principles of the philosophes. And it also vigorously opposed the moderate monarchists which dominated the assembly and the commune, individuals such as Bailly and Lafayette. The Cercle Social, however, was no bulldog. More akin to a poodle, the organisation was undoubtedly still a dog. It was still a club which occupied the far left of the political spectrum, still a club which advocated universal male suffrage, republican ideas and black emancipation, but it was more polished, more elegant, certainly more academic, seemingly more comfortable in the salon than in the streets. The two institutions did differ in substance on some key points, particularly regarding issues such as women's rights and direct versus representative democracy. 
Furthermore, there's plenty of instances where the leadership of both clubs didn't play nice with one another. In fact, to illustrate that point, Brousseau, as a leading member of the Paris Commune until August 1790, was responsible for many of the policies Danton and his Cordeliers outright rejected. Danton and his allies wanted to assign more power to the districts and supported the notion that districts should have direct control over their representatives in the city government. They advocated for districts to have the right to bind their representatives to the decisions of the local assembly and recall and replace unsatisfactory representatives should they vote otherwise. Brousseau and his allies rejected this unrestrained embrace of direct democracy. They were not as fearful of direct democracy as, say, the centrists in the National Assembly, but they were wary of empowering the local assemblies to the point where they exercised complete control over their representatives in the local or national government. Furthermore, Brousseau has his fingerprints on the reforms which abolished the Parisian districts and replaced them with sections, the very reforms which prompted the creation of the Cordelier Club and which so infuriated Danton and Demolard. So, despite being similar, the two clubs were sufficiently different in terms of style, outlook, leading personalities, and at times, substance. One issue the two organisations could agree on, however, was the necessity of a free press. Left-wing deputies within the Assembly, and their ideological allies outside of it, vehemently defended the unrestricted freedom of the press. To them, the necessity of a free press was obvious. It was, after all, the free press which had secured or facilitated so many of the gains of the Revolution of 1789. The free press was the champion of the people, the defender of the downtrodden, the lighthouse of the third estate, simultaneously guiding the commons to safety while illuminating the dangers of counter-revolutionary plots which lurked in the darkness. The problem, however, was that by late 1789, some centrists and many conservative deputies believed the press was a tad too free. With the Assembly being challenged for power by so many actors, the vocal free press was only making the Assembly's consolidation of power all the more difficult. Of particular concern for some deputies was the radical journalist Jean-Paul Marat and the vile he produced on a regular basis. Since September 1789, Marat had consistently produced publications which called for, well, radical change. Marat often demanded the purging of the Assembly, the Paris Commune, the Royal Ministry and the National Guard. According to Marat, the best way to secure the revolution was by executing several hundred traitors. Only through blood could the nation be reborn. Only through mass execution could France eradicate the parasites, monopolists, cheats, rogues and counter-revolutionaries which dominated the offices of power and betrayed the people to please their aristocratic overlords. Conservatives in the assembly such as Marie understandably feared this violent rhetoric and many centrists were alarmed as well. On the 22nd of January 1790, the authorities finally moved on Marat and in doing so, the free press. Surrounding Marat in the Cordeliers district, the royalist writer Mojoir recalls the day's events. Lafayette marched against Marat, an army of 6,000 men, and posted them at the opening of every street. Abutting on the house were two pieces of artillery. This was so extraordinary that, had I not been a witness of it myself, I should never have believed it. 
Conceive, indeed, this hero of two worlds, deploying forces so formidable against a crank whose only arm was his pen. Now, Mojoir is the kind of author that you always need to take what he says with a grain of salt. A force of 6,000 guardsmen seems a tad outrageous and a little bit unnecessary. Not as outrageous or unnecessary as when Disney decided to place a planet-destroying weapon on literally every ship of the Emperor's fleet in the new Star Wars movie, but outrageous and unnecessary nonetheless. Whatever the force that was truly mustered to take down Marah, the radical writer nevertheless escaped the grasp of the authorities. Evading capture with the assistance of friends, Marat made for London and did not resume printing in Paris until May. It's not Marat's escape, however, that's of particular interest. It's who came to his defence that's of real note. Danton and his Cordelia's district vehemently defended the persecuted journalist. Danton was no friend of Marat, yet he nevertheless vigorously defended him from the authorities. Furthermore, the Circal Social also came to the defence of the radical journalist, and afterwards to the defence of Danton, once he was charged with sedition for helping Marat elude capture. This is of particular note because Brousseau and his allies in the Paris Commune not only had a patchy relationship with Danton, but were the very people Marat had been calling to be purged from the Hotel de Ville. In order to protect the principle of the free press, all of these actors became unlikely allies, albeit only temporary ones. The left, both inside and outside of the assembly, through legal and not-so-legal means, vigorously defended the principle of free speech. The failure to arrest Marat underscored the failure of the assembly to limit, in any practical way, the freedom of the press. Whatever the assembly tried, forcibly seizing newspapers and pamphlets, litigating authors for defamation, destroying printing presses, arresting writers for sedition, nothing seemed to work for any length of time. The practically unrestricted nature of the press thus helped to undermine the Assembly's consolidation of power. Furthermore, it actively impeded that consolidation. The free press allowed the Parisian sections to publicise their defiant motions against the decrees of the Assembly and the Commune. The free press permitted political clubs to politicise workers, soldiers and sailors. The free press fostered the radicalisation of the National Guard, both inside and outside of the capital. The volume of the material that was being produced was, in a word, staggering. Before the revolution, there were perhaps as many as 60 newspapers produced in the entire country. While supplemented by foreign publications, 60 is not a particularly large number compared to what I'm about to say. As the revolution was unleashed, the number of newspapers rapidly ballooned. In July 1789, 30 new newspapers began publishing in Paris alone. Another 28 sprung up in August, and by the end of 1789, there were at least 140 papers being produced in the capital, almost half of which were being produced daily. By August 1792, there was close to 500 papers being published in Paris alone. Before the revolution, that number was 60. Not 60 in Paris, but 60 in the entire country. The volume of printed material flooding the public sphere was tremendous. It was astonishing, even if every publication did not possess a significant readership base. 
To make matters worse for the Assembly, this rapidly expanding free press was incredibly one-sided. While royalist, Catholic and centrist publications did exist, historian Charles Mallet notes that they existed with great difficulty. Mallet notes the harassment such publications endured, the pressure which was exerted upon them to cease their writings, and the influential impact this had on driving the revolution towards more radical outcomes. But again and again, self-constituted critics, deputations from the Palais Royal, representatives of the mob, and even the agents of the local authorities, denounced, remonstrated, and interfered with the writer, and plainly threatened with violence and death any who dared to use the freedom of the press to defend unpopular, though liberal, opinions. Under such conditions, and having regard to the disorganisation and unwisdom of the royalists, and to the energy and enthusiasm which pervaded the popular party, it is not surprising that the power of the press came to be enlisted almost entirely upon the democratic side, and helped to render irresistible the victorious advocates of the revolution. Thus, while the free press was not a rival for power in the new revolutionary order, it did undeniably assist the radical and progressive institutions, societies and individuals which were challenging the Assembly's monopoly on authority. The unrestricted nature of the free press further radicalised those institutions and lent legitimacy to them as they sought to gain more popular support. Unable to implement any meaningful restrictions on the printers of Paris, conservative deputies watched helplessly as the press further hampered the Assembly's consolidation of power. But, lest you think that all the Assembly's rivals for power resided principally in Paris, don't. The Assembly's authority was also challenged in the countryside as well, by both the provinces and the new municipal governments. After the fall of the Bastille and the onset of the Great Fear, a municipal revolution occurred throughout France. In the weeks that followed, royal authority continued to deteriorate. This deterioration occurred in part because countless officials either abandoned their posts or were chased from them. The brutal murder of de Savigny, the intendant of Paris, and his father-in-law, Foulon, signalled to many other intendants that they should make a hasty departure. After all, lamp posts and decapitations weren't part of the initial job description. Not only did the intendants desert their offices, however, but tax collectors, policemen, and other individuals who held positions which were resented by the common people also ran for the exits. The result was that royal authority laid in tatters, and this deterioration of royal authority paved the way for the rise of the new municipal governments. The new municipalities quickly established themselves as the only semblance of authority in the countryside. The problem for the National Assembly, however, was that these municipal governments empowered themselves, uh, just a little too much. In fact, some of these municipalities started to behave like miniature republics. Not only did they create their own National Guard units, but they started unilaterally proclaiming decrees and proclamations. Furthermore, they unilaterally raised taxes, arrested individuals who were suspected of counter-revolutionary activities, and forcibly requisitioned grain from the nearby peasantry. While officially, these municipalities swore loyalty to the National Assembly in Paris, in practice, many were operating like autonomous states in their own right. 
To make matters worse for the deputies in Paris, the provinces of the old regime had the potential to create an even greater headache for the National Assembly. It was feared by some that the 32 provinces, some of which were quite large, could be used as a framework to foment civil war against the revolutionary government. This fear was not unfounded. Many of these provinces had a long history of autonomy and possessed a local identity which jealously guarded its bespoke rights and privileges from any and all encroachment. Furthermore, when Minier, leader of the English bloc, quit the assembly after the October days, where did he go? That's right, right back to his home province. And what did he try to do there? He tried to stir up opposition to the assembly. Now, considering the events in the Dauphine had been so instrumental in helping bring about the Estates General, events such as the Day of Tiles and the Vassil Assembly, it wasn't unthinkable that one province could seriously jeopardise the agenda of the national government. It had happened before. As a result of the authority of the municipalities and the threat that the provinces presented, the National Assembly introduced sweeping administrative reforms throughout 1789 and 1790 in order to try to cement its authority throughout the kingdom. The key backer of this radical reform was Abbe Sies. Sies originally proposed that the provinces of France should be rationalised into 80 departments of roughly the same territorial size. This crazy proposal was then developed further, and a deputy named Touré was the one who eventually proposed the detailed plan to the assembly. This plan contained 81 departments, all of which were 324 square leagues in size. Each department would then be divided into nine districts, which again would be divided into nine municipalities. It was envisioned that not only would these departments replace France's provinces, but other types of geographic jurisdictions within the country as well. France, after all, was a complete patchwork of overlapping and inconsistent jurisdictions. The jurisdictions, for example, of the Catholic Church, the diocese, did not align at all with the military's jurisdictions known as the Generalites. Neither of these overlapped with the firms, the jurisdictions used for tax collection, and of course, the bailages used for the justice system were also completely independent as well. Under the proposed plan, this hodgepodge of administrative jurisdictions would all be rationalised into 81 departments of roughly equal size. Furthermore, these departments would be used as the backbone of the new electoral system, as having one system for administration and one system for elections would offend the deputies' affinity for standardisation. Importantly, however, by dramatically curtailing the size of the provinces, the departments which replaced them would pose a far lesser threat to the national government. Robbed of their historic identities and much reduced in size, the ability of local regions to wage civil war in opposition to the assembly would be much reduced. Mirabeau favoured the reform, but he and others in the assembly opposed the specifics of the plan. For Mirabeau, the idea of creating departments based on area rather than population was a mistake. He argued in favour of creating the departments based on population, which would also conveniently allow the cartographers to take into account local topography, such as rivers, lakes and mountains, when designing the departments. A compromise solution was reached by Barnev, where each department was roughly the same territorial size, but was then further divided into either three or four electoral districts to ensure the number of people per representative remained uniformed. Thus, 
Through a series of votes in 1789 and 1790, the Assembly voted to abolish the ancient provinces of France and replace them with a final number of 83 departments. The deputies didn't stop there, however. To further weaken the power of the departments, the deputies deliberately empowered the levels of government below that of the department level. This further reduced the ability of the departments to resist the will of Paris. The sheer number of administrative bodies is summarised by historian Charles Mallet. Under this system, all existing divisions and provincial distinctions were swept away, and the country was as nearly as possible symmetrically divided into 83 departments. These departments were further subdivided into 574 districts, into 4,730 cantons, and lastly into 44,000 communes or municipalities. Of these four divisions, the cantons possessed no administrative importance, being only invented for the purpose of symmetry and to facilitate the electoral operations. But each of the others, each department, district and municipality, had its own little constitution based upon popular election and with many varieties and complexities of form. Every department, district and municipality had its own council or deliberative body and its own executive officers too. The result of dividing the country into some 83 departments, nearly 600 districts and some 44,000 municipalities was that France became incredibly decentralised. Historian Charles Hazen notes the difference between the centralising tendencies of old regime France and the decentralised nature of the revolutionary administration which initially replaced it. France, far from being a highly centralised state, became one highly decentralised. Whereas formerly the central government was represented in each province by its own agents or office holders, the intendants and their subordinates, in the departments of the future, the central government was to have no representatives. The electors were to choose the local department officials. It would be the business of these officials to carry out the decrees of the central government. But what if they should disobey? The central government would have no control over them, as it would not appoint them and could neither remove nor discipline them. That last line is of note. Due to the direct elections for key positions within the municipalities, the deputies in Paris had no real means to control or reprimand communes which failed to obey the laws of the National Assembly. This might be viewed as a flaw in the design of the new system, but historian Gaetano Salvamini offers an alternative point of view. According to historian Salvamini, it was clear to the deputies that the departments and the municipalities would act in an independent manner irrelevant of the new administrative system adopted. Neither level of government would be willing to surrender its authority to Paris, and Paris lacked the ability to assert its authority in the turbulent early months of the revolution. As a result, according to Salvamini, the deputies deliberately decided it was better to empower the municipalities than the departments. Thus, they gave the municipal authorities not only control of local services, administration of commune revenues, public works, police, etc., but also of others hitherto appertaining to the central administration, 
most important of which was the levying and collecting of taxes. According to Salvamini, the Assembly knew that establishing direct control over a rapidly decentralising nation which was experiencing revolution was more or less impossible. Thus, the deputies deliberately sought to ensure that the power was spread throughout the new levels of government to prevent any one of them from rivaling the Assembly's grip on power. A rogue municipality would be far less dangerous than a rogue department. Furthermore, it cannot be overlooked that this plan played into the ideological inclinations of the deputies, many of whom favoured democratic participation and elections wherever possible. Of course, democratic participation and elections involving only active citizens, but hey, who's looking at the distinctions here? It is noteworthy that Touré's original proposal to the Assembly suggested the establishment of roughly 6,500 communes nationwide. The final number of some 44,000 communes underscores just how decentralised the French state was becoming. Like many reforms, these administrative changes did have some unintended consequences, however. Local communes allowed historic rivalries to prevent regional cooperation. Furthermore, in more than 80 cases, all three levels of government resided in the same town, sometimes in the same location. The result was rivalries and dysfunction between the administrative officials of the department, the district and the municipality further hampered regional cooperation and good governance. However, while this didn't foster good governance, it did mean that the Assembly's intentions of removing the provinces and their department replacements as threats to its power had been achieved brilliantly. In the future, entire regions would struggle to seriously threaten the Assembly's grip on power due to an inability to easily coordinate collective action. To make a comparison, imagine the difficulties in creating the Confederate States of America if one had to unite and coordinate several thousand municipalities instead of just a handful of states. According to historian Louis Madeleine, these reforms had grave consequences for the nation as no local authority could easily challenge the national legislature during the turbulent times that would follow the initial honeymoon period of the revolution. On the other hand, thanks to the suspicion with which provincial opinion was regarded, even after the provinces had been cut up, very little power was conferred on the departments. This institution of the departments, by decrees passed on November 11th and 12th, 1789, and February 15th and 26th, 1790, was, from the standpoint of the Assembly, that of the triumph of the revolution, a stroke of genius. By this dismemberment of the country, all resistance on the part of the provinces to the law imposed on them by Paris was rendered impossible. The process weakened France, indeed, in every bone. The country was to suffer, and certain of its limbs were to be permanently crippled. The consequent anemia was to become chronic. The head was to grow out of all proportion. The head would indeed grow out of all proportion. In the future, some departments would try to challenge the power of Paris, and the nation would plunge into the dark depths of civil war as a result. But that is some time away. So for now, let us move on to the Assembly's judicial reforms. Not content with completely overhauling the administrative system of France, 
the deputies soon overhauled the judicial system as well. Unsurprisingly, the aristocratic parlements, the former allies of the Third Estate, were not spared. Since the Paris Parlement broke with the Third Estate in September 1788 and called for a traditional Estates General, the public had abandoned their support for the ancient courts. In fact, the popular press called for their abolishment, with some publications denouncing them as enemies of the people. The Parlements and the noblesse de robe who occupied them were cast aside. They would be replaced by a new judicial system. New tribunals were created at the department and district level, and critically, like the officials belonging to the new administrative system, the judges of these new tribunals were elected. Of course, these elections were held by active citizens, but the concept of electing judges was nonetheless a radical departure from the historic norms of old regime France. Norms which had consisted of an aristocratic judiciary whose members had often purchased their offices. The abolishment of the parlements was accompanied by reforms which more or less overturned the legal system of the old regime. Letters de cachet were abolished, venal offices were abolished, feudal courts were abolished, juries were introduced for criminal cases, and it was decreed that every citizen had the right to defend their case in person, either through written or oral arguments. In short, the entire judicial system was standardised and overhauled across the nation. Unsurprisingly, such reforms were met with resistance. Inside the Assembly, the Conservatives bitterly protested the closure of the Parlements. The Assembly was robbing the aristocratic judges of their property, property which was meant to be protected under the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Outside of the Assembly, multiple Parlements put up bitter resistance, including Rennes, Toulouse, Bordeaux and Metz. Even some provincial estates, including the estates of the Dauphine, protested the move. But in underscoring just how much the political situation had changed, the Parlements received only a fraction of the public support which had protected them in 1788 from Brienne's suppression. In 1788, the famous Day of Tiles revolt had broken out in Grenoble to protect the people's heroes. By 1790, the people had new heroes. In a cruel twist of fate, it's worth pointing out that the assault on the Parlements was led in the Assembly by members of its own. According to historian Simon Sharma, there were at least 38 members of the Parlements amongst the Assembly, some of whom championed the Parlements' demise. This, of course, included Duport, a member of the Triumvirate and former leader of the radical faction of the Paris Parlement. Like the destruction of the Jedi Order, the downfall of the ancient institution of the Parlement was led by one of its own. Before we wrap up, however, we do need to discuss opposition to both the administrative and judicial reforms. While the common people didn't rush into the streets to protect the protesting parlements of Rennes, Toulouse, Bordeaux and Metz and other towns which experienced disruption, there was still those who resented the assembly for the judicial reforms. Much more importantly, however, the loss of prerogatives for certain provinces which had commenced with the abolition of privileges and which had been cemented by the administrative reforms did leave a bitter taste in the mouths of some regions. Provinces like Britannia and Languedoc protested their loss of special status, and other towns and communities vehemently protested how the creation of departments, districts and communes would negatively affect them. 
Complaints included the fact that rival towns had been promoted at their expense or other communities had been allocated the best land for grazing or farming. Were these reforms enough to swell the ranks of the counter-revolution? No, but they were enough to start offsiding particular regions and communities. So much so that when the revolutionaries started to pick very public and very divisive debates with the Catholic Church, there were already those with grudges against the National Assembly in Paris. The appeal of counter-revolution was slowly on the rise. Regardless of whether one looks inside or outside of Paris, the National Assembly was being challenged by a range of revolutionary actors. The National Guard was an opinion in arms, one which was increasingly autonomous and radicalised, and only theoretically subordinate to the revolutionary authorities. The sections of Paris and the political clubs which were associated with them threatened the peace. These political associations were often led by radical Democrats and Republicans, and they challenged the authority of both the National Assembly and the Paris Commune. Intent on politicising the common people and pushing for greater revolutionary reforms, their ability to mobilise the citizenry presented a considerable risk to the government. Outside of the capital, decentralised France possessed its own risks. The officials of the municipalities were directly elected and could thus not be held to account by the National Assembly. While the provinces had been disarmed, non-compliance with the Assembly could hamper the establishment of the new revolutionary order and even threaten its success. Everywhere one looked, throughout the Assembly, throughout the capital, throughout the countryside, power was divided amongst a number of competing rivals. Such a scenario of competing authorities could not last, however. As they say in Highlander, there can only be one. Thank you for listening to episode 17, Rivals for Power. Next week we'll be covering the democratic spirit which washes over France throughout 1789 and 1790. We'll dive into the ceremonies, the traditions, the problems that arise as regular French citizens embrace the ideas of the new order. We'll also be discussing the effects this has on the army, because it turns out that if all your soldiers start preaching words like liberty and equality, there can be some unintended consequences. All of this will allow us to cover two of the biggest events of 1790. Now, before you go... If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History, and if you'd like to have some more Grey History, well then there is something you can do to help make that happen. If you know someone that likes it when the ambiguities of history are explored, that enjoys their history in a colour that is not black and white, then please do tell them about Grey History. I cannot stress enough that the longevity of Grey History is dependent on fans like you telling other potential fans about the benefits of dabbling in the Grey. So, please do spread the word. As always, if you have any questions or queries, please do send them through, either by the Facebook page or greyhistory.com. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.